Valence Band, right, from the conductor band up here to the Valence Band. And as you stay in the Valence Band, it's what we call a hole. And so if I think about this electronic state here, what we want to think about for a hole is what kind of fictional particle is left behind. That is, what, what's the <coughs> equivalent particle if I had a filled band here and I removed that electron from that state there. So what kind of fictional particle is left behind when I remove the electron from that state? So the filled band had zero total momentum. Right? This is the valence band, and I fill it all up. I add up all the electrons in there. Things are symmetric in k-space. There's zero total momentum in that band. But I want to remove now an electron from this state. Okay? So I've removed momentum uh, ke. Okay. So the total band now has momentum minus ke. That should be an e down there. Right there. Minus k sub e. So when I remove that momentum, right, the band the band is now missing that momentum. So now if I sum up all the momentum of all the electrons in that band, I'd get zero minus that state. So zero minus k sub e. So this should be a minus k sub e. Okay, right there, minus k sub e. So it costs energy to remove the electron as well. Okay. So really, by removing the electron from here, uh, it's actually, rather than <coughs> costing me negative energy, it costs me positive energy to pull it out of the material. Okay. So the hole we write then as having a dispersion that's, that's upwardly dispersing, okay, because it's positive energies. Okay. In this diagram, by the way, I've set the zero of energy right here at the edge of the band. You can set zeros wherever you want for this purpose. Okay. That, that whole band is not the conduction band, right? Not the conduction band, it's the whole band. So when I remove an electron from here, I've actually imparted to the system this much momentum. Okay? So I took away k sub e, which means the, the band now has minus k sub e. So the momentum of the whole really has to be considered to be opposite to that. Okay? You, you get a chance to sort that all out on your homework. But since, since removing that electron costs me minus ke and uh, momentum, then the whole actually has, the fictional particle that we assigned to that then has actually the opposite momentum from the state that you removed. Okay. And it's got a positive energy. So here again is the, is the picture. I've filled electronic states on the bottom. When I remove an electron from here, it's as though I have an effective hole at this energy, at this momentum. Okay. So the contrast then between all the states is I've removed an electron with these properties and the effective hole <coughs> I've created has these properties. Okay. So I've removed an electron with, with uh, of some negative energy because it's from a downwardly dispersing band. And the effective hole has the opposite energy. Okay, so I've removed negative energy from the system, so it's lost me energy. Momentum K was the electron that we removed, okay, so, but we're removing it. So the hole, whatever fictional particle we put in its place to describe that, has the opposite momentum. And you can get that just by summing over the momenta of the, the valence band. The charge of the electron is minus E. The effective charge of the hole is positive now. Okay. The mass of the electron removed was negative, almost always, because you're talking about the top of a, of a band. So that's the effective mass for your The effective mass of the electron. The effective mass of the electron <coughs> here is negative. Then the effective mass of the hole, which, remember, the hole doesn't really exist. It's a particle we made up. Okay but it's a useful fiction. Okay, we'll get a lot of mileage out of the idea of a hole. It behaves as though it has a positive mass. <coughs> and the velocity, as it turns out, is the same for both. Can you, can you spot why, according to the diagram, the group velocity is the same? Remember how to calculate a group velocity from a dispersion? 
Yeah. Right. Right. So the slope right here is the same as the slope right there. Okay. So miraculously, the velocities are the same. <coughs> Have any questions about that? Yes. Well, okay. So if you want some sort of, of global charge conservation, you're almost always promoting the electron from the valence band to the conduction band. <coughs> or if they were donor or, or uh, acceptor levels around, it might have gone to one of those levels. Yeah. If you are uh, doing extreme photodoping, you can add such high energy photons that you start ionizing things. That's the photoelectric effect. Um, that can't go too far because you get a charged sample at some point. And anyway, electrostatic won't, won't let you get very far with that. So yeah, we're really thinking that we've put promoted this electron from the valence band up to the conduction band. <coughs> Any other questions? Yeah. So the whole the way you draw it, it looks almost like a band. Is there I mean like a whole band, or is it just because it looks like a parabola? You want to call it a band? You can call it the whole band. Okay, and it's not like there probably is. Okay. I would call it a whole band. All right. I think people would know what you meant if you call it a whole band. Any of the electrical engineers want to tell us? Can we call it a whole band? Okay, the electrical engineers are not in their heads. So I think we can. All right. So let's consider the Hall effect. And the reason we want to consider the Hall effect is because the Hall effect is a measurement you can do to determine whether you have positive charge carriers in your sample or negative charge carriers in your sample. So let me just remind you what the Hall effect is. So the Hall effect <laughs> makes use of, that's got to be a better font in your notes, right? Here, Yeah, the vector symbols. Vector symbols never, never do well on this machine, sorry. So these, this is a, a what happens to a charged particle in the presence of an electric field and a magnetic field. So we know if I have a charged particle in the presence of an electric field, it gets accelerated along the direction of the field, either in that direction <laughs> or if it's optically charged in the opposite direction of the field. A magnetic field tends to deflect it, but only if it was already moving, right? So a charged particle, so let's say this room is filled with a magnetic field pointing up. A charged particle moving through <coughs> that will tend to deflect one way or the other. So we can look at the signs here this is written for an electron, okay, where I have a minus sign in front of the charge. So this is for a negatively charged particle. Then this tells me that if there's an electron moving through a magnetic field pointing up in the room, okay, it feels a force V cross B, right? So remember your right hand rule, V cross B would make a force that way, but it's a negatively charged particle. So you flip the sign. So an electron traveling this way in a magnetic field pointing up would get deflected to the left. So here, for example, is our negative EV cross B. Tell me I got the signs <coughs> right in my... Yes, I did. Okay. So here is a geometry where we're going to do a Hall effect measurement. Okay. And if I apply an electric field okay, to the right, this is some material. You always use a bar-shaped geometry so you can uh, distinguish... So it's not too it's not too thin in this direction, but I want a width in this direction and I want a width in that direction so I can measure those two directions. And here I have a magnetic field pointing out. Okay, so now now the magnetic field's coming out of the board, and electric field is to the right. An electron in the presence of that electric field gets accelerated <coughs> oppositely, right? That's this equation up here. The force is, is minus the charge uh, times the electric field. <coughs> Okay, so the electron tends to go the other direction. So now you have V, right? V cross B would give me a force up, but it's a negatively charged particle, so it's the other way. So this is the direction that the electron gets deflected in. Okay. So what that means is when I <coughs> apply this electric field, run, run the electrons that direction, in the presence of a magnetic field, all the electrons will get deflected. Okay? So you have to ask yourself, how long can that go on? Okay? Because an electron runs along here, it hits the edge, so it stops. Okay? So it can't, it's not going to go out of the edge. Now, it, what it's actually going to do is it's going to kind of bump along. 
on the edge because it'll get deflected back and, and the electric field will accelerate it again. So it just kind of hops along the edge here. But I do get a, a <coughs> buildup of charge down here, buildup of negative charge. Why do I get a buildup of positive charge up here? Pardon? Actually, I don't want to think about holes yet. Charge that would be a reason. Pardon? Okay, so what are the positive charges? The ions. The ions. Okay, that's it, yeah. So here I have electrons running around. The electrons get sucked down here, exposes some positive ions up there. So I get a buildup of negative charge here. It exposes some positive charge up there. That causes an electric field. Question? I think your E field should probably point down. Which one? Uh, the E field due to the buildup charge on the positive. Yeah, so you're right. It, it always goes away from positive charges. Yep. So, but um, I may have set that sign so that the coefficient is negative. The coefficient is the correct. Okay. So let's hold off on that. Okay. You're right. The actual electric field will point down, so it may be that E okay. is negative. Okay. Um, Okay, so we have a buildup build of charge across the bar, so we can measure that in an experiment. Okay, so you can go do this at home, right? Especially the engineers. I know you have stuff at home to play with this, right? Put yourself a magnetic field on a little bar and run a current through it and test the, the transverse voltage. You see a transverse voltage there. So what happens, though, is that sometimes, uh, the, if all we assume we have running around is electrons, we'll sometimes get the sign wrong in this equation. Okay, so we need to, to think then about what you know how we can sometimes get a, a different sign. But continuing on with the free electron picture, what we have here this is uh, the Lorentz force, and this is this is the force mass times acceleration, and again it's minus the charge since we're talking about an electron times the electric field plus v cross b. Now I've added a term here. Because I want to think about steady states, right? In a real material, I don't get to just arbitrarily accelerate charges forever and ever. So in a material, I can't just use the electric field to continually accelerate the charge, right? So it's actually going to feel a drag force. Because the, you know, if I think about the steady state of this system, sure, some electrons get deflected here and there, okay? But if I look then at the net velocities going on, there will be a net velocity of charges moving along the hull bar. Okay, in steady state, I will have built up so much charge in the in the hull bar. Okay, in in steady state, once I've built up enough of a charge here, then it actually gets hard for electrons to get deflected down again. Okay, so steady state, you'll actually get only a drift velocity this way. This buildup happens pretty quickly. Okay. You get that, that buildup going on, and then there'll be an electric field to cancel it. So you get an electric field to cancel the V cross V term. So in fact, in steady state, the electrons only move in this direction. It's already built up some charge, and the charge will oppose the magnetic field causing it to drift down. Okay. So in steady state, there will be velocities <coughs> this way, and no velocities transverse. So let's see how that works. So in steady state, the, uh, let me take the x components and the y components of this equation okay, and see what happens. So I know I can't just arbitrarily accelerate charges forever in a material. There's, there are resistive processes that uh, play in, right? The electron scatters off of impurities, it scatters off of phonons, and there's some sort of, of uh, mean relaxation <coughs> that. And it's dependent on the velocity times the mass okay, divided by tau. So here then, let me take the x component, all right? And in the x component, I will have a net drift velocity. So that's this, v sub x, okay? Looking at steady state. In the x component, there actually is no uh, component to v cross b in the x component, right? v cross b in our thing here was pointing down, which I've defined as the y direction, okay? So there's no, no x component to that term, so it's, it's not there. Here, I worry about the x component of the electric field. So that's the x component of that force balance equation in the material. Now I'd like to look at the y component. Okay, so all this stuff, the y component. Again, I'm assuming steady state means that the forces have balanced out. 
So that's why there's a zero on the left-hand side here. So Y component. There is a Y component to the electric field. It's not what I applied, right? But it's what comes up because of the charge imbalance. So there's definitely a Y component. I write that down. Here, I get a V cross V term, okay? And that certainly exists because that's the direction that the electrons were get, getting deflected in the in the uh, in the early time behavior, okay? Not the steady state behavior. But so then this term is actually proportional to the drift velocity of the electrons, okay? Which was in the x direction, right? In steady state, there's a net drift velocity in this direction. So the magnetic field is trying to deflect it down. There's an electric field that came up to prevent that. So in fact, the two cancel, okay? And that's why I was able to say that there is no steady state long time velocity, okay, in the transverse direction. There's a short time behavior there. Once that charge builds up, it's canceled. There's no net velocity in the y direction. So all I did was take the force equation, write down all the x components, write down all the y components because I can separately balance those forces. So I can solve here, I can solve here, and figure out what's going on. Now, the current that's here in steady state, okay, the current density is minus the charge times the density of electrons. It's a little where it is, it's the density of electrons, times the velocity, okay? And if this is a J sub X, this is really a V sub X down there. And what that's, so let me solve over here then, okay, for E sub Y. If I look at this equation, it came from here, solving for E sub Y. Cancel the charges, and then E sub Y equals VXB, which is here. E sub Y equals VXB, okay? All that says is that the transverse voltage comes up in order to oppose what the magnetic field was doing. But V sub X, according to this equation, I can rewrite in terms of J sub X and the carrier density and all that. So solve this equation for V, and I get minus J over NE. That's here, J over minus NE. Okay. And <coughs> this, by the way, you can also rewrite as the Hall voltage will end up being proportional to V cross J. Okay. If you look at these components, that's consistent with this vector equation here. Okay. So, so E sub Y and E Hall are the same? Yes. So here in this case, then, whatever's left over is the Hall coefficient, okay, with the applied magnetic field cross the current that comes up in steady state, and then the coefficient left over is what you call the Hall coefficient. So since that's negative, that's going to make the Hall voltage be in the direction you guys wanted. So here, it's always going to be negative for free electrons. I didn't make any particular assumptions here other than that my carriers were electrons. So if the carriers <coughs> are electrons, then the whole voltage itself will end up being, sorry, the whole coefficient will end up being negative. Okay. Get a minus sign out front here with a 1 over density uh, times the absolute value of the electric charge. Are there any questions about how that went? It's all basically geometry. So we can use that kind of physics then to measure the sign of the carriers we have in the system. If the carriers in the system are acting mostly like free electrons, okay, then we'll see what we just calculated, that there'll be a negative Hall coefficient. So let me think then about, uh, you know, how do I change this a little bit to give myself uh, holes, okay? Another way to rewrite this force equation is to think, well, what should I put in here for the force? This is the, the effective mass times the acceleration. And near a band edge, of course, I can always take, <coughs> take the uh, particle and uh, approximate it as a parabola. Okay? Approximating it as a parabola here. And then the drift velocity I should look at okay, is the group velocity, d omega dk, or 1 over h bar dE by dk, or if you want to get complicated here with, with um, directions to select a gradient. So the velocity then is proportional to h bar k over the effective mass. Okay, h bar k is what we use for the momentum inside of a crystal, which is mv. So mv dot then 
is h bar k, there should have been a dot up there. Okay, a little dot there. Because I just took the time derivative of this momentum equation. So this is the time, time derivative on the right-hand side. So another way to look at this equation here, then, is to say that I actually get this h bar dk by dt okay, as the force because it's the time derivative of the momentum. <laughs> the momentum of the electron in the crystal is h bar k. So the time derivative is the momentum. Sorry, the time derivative is the force. And then that is equal to the Lorentz force. Okay. So this is the equation we just derived for electrons. Now, if I think about a hole, you know, how do I write this down for a hole? Well, we already decided that the right wave vector for the hole is opposite in sign from the electron that's subtracted from the band, right? Because a hole happens when you take in a filled electron band and subtract one electron. Okay. So I've removed k sub e. So the hole has minus that momentum. So the momentum of the hole is minus k sub e. Okay. Then, if I want to look about at uh, this uh, I want to. I want to look at this equation now. I have no idea why that plot <coughs> works in one spot in this equation and not the other. Comes right. out fine on here. It's all fine. I know it's all fine on your computer. Uh, on, on there because I, I print out the PDF on my computer where it's all looking fine. And then, okay. Well, anyway, that's interesting. Random plot problems. So anyway, this is an H bar, of course. So the time derivative then of the whole wave vector is related to minus the time derivative of the electron wave vector. Okay, just because they're equal and opposite. So then, if I plug in this equation, okay, I knew how uh, the time derivative of the electron wave vector was related to uh, the Lorentz force. So I can just plug that in okay, on the right-hand side. And you'll see then that w the equation of motion I get for the whole wave vector, here, here it was for the electron wave vector, right, k sub e. Here it is for the whole wave vector, and there's a sign in front, right? It's positive there. So this is part of why uh, the hole acts like it has a positive charge. Its equation of motion, which is h bar uh, dk by dt for the hole, okay, looks like a Lorentz force on a positive charge. So the equation of motion is that of a positive charge. <coughs> so now we can redo our analysis thinking in terms of the different equation that we should be following for a positively charged particle. Here it was for an electron. Okay, The electron has a negative charge on it and all the forces acting on it are the electric field plus the cross B, okay, where I've applied the electric field, I've applied the magnetic field. And remember for our electron, how did this go? So the, the uh, electric field in, in both these geometries, down here I'm going to think about holes, up here I'm going to think about electrons. So in both these geometries, the electric field is to the right, and the magnetic field is out of the board. <coughs> Up top, the electric field going to the right accelerated the electron to the left. Okay, so then we did the right-hand rule. We said, well, up here, the electron is moving to the left. It's a V cross B, so there's forces at that weight because of the minus sign of the charge. You see the electron <coughs> ran down and gave me a net minus charge there. For the holes, okay, with the same uh, experimental setup, right? Holes will follow the electric field rather than fighting it, right? So the holes get accelerated along the electric field. So now we do V cross B again, okay? So the velocity that way, B this way, and the force is down, and it's a positive particle, so it doesn't have to flip that force. So this positive charge then gets deflected this way, okay? Which exposes some negative charge up here. So in this case then, notice that, that the positive charges are collecting on the bottom, whereas up here, these negative charges collecting on the bottom. In, in both geometries, the carriers went down to the bottom, but, but they're oppositely charged. So I'd be able to detect that. And I, I, I would detect that as this sign of the, the whole voltage <laughs> would be opposite what it was for the electron case. Are there any questions about that? Sort of takes about five minutes by yourself somewhere to go through all the right hand rules. Questions? Is this like characteristic of materials? 
that the whole movie is using electron theory or I mean, whatever happens? Or right. So what I'm saying is this is a material that has electron-like carriers in it. Okay. It could be a metal or it could be a semiconductor where we've doped it so that the main carriers are electron-like. This one, the main carriers are <coughs> holes. So it could be a band that was just almost filled, which rarely happens. It's more likely that, it, that it's a semiconductor that we dope to be p-type, so that the main carriers are p-type. Any other questions? Yeah, I encourage you to go over that slide and do the right-hand rules and get it all correct. Here's a question. Which way is the current flowing in these examples? So up here, which way is the current flowing? All right. <coughs> and then down here. Yeah, okay. So the current's flowing the same direction in both. Other questions? Okay. So now let me look at the equations for the holes. This is the same geometry, same exact figure even, okay. but I built up a hole voltage in the opposite direction. And now, uh, E sub hall then, we, we define as this coefficient up front, the hall coefficient, times the applied magnetic field cross the current density which is the current density in the, the long direction. And our current density, of course, is P. P is the concentration of holes. Okay, I'm thinking semiconductors now. We'll use lowercase p to be the concentration of p-type carriers times a positive charge times the velocity. Okay. All of that together, if you redo the analysis, will give me a positive Hall coefficient. Okay, so it's 1 over density of p-type carriers, which is density of holes, times their positive charge, which is a positive Hall coefficient for the holes. Are there any questions? Okay. All right, so the Hall measurement can distinguish for you. You know, if I handed you a semiconductor and I said it's doped, but I don't know if it's p-type or n-type, you can do this and you tell me if it's p-type or it's n-type. Just the value of the. Never mind. Okay, all right. Any other questions? <coughs> so I can talk about uh, conductivity and mobility in these cases where we have P type and N type semiconductors. We know how to tell whether it's mostly P type or N type. Remember how, what the conductivities look like. This was the, the free electron case. The, if I had the case of, of mostly free electrons, the conductivity looked like the density times charge squared times tau. Tau was the mean time between collisions. If you're assuming there's some sort of resistive process in the material where the electron whacks into phonons or impurities, divided by its effective mass. And we got this by looking at the current density being uh, <coughs> J equals sigma E. This is Ohm's law, right? V equals I, R is the more familiar form, but this is exactly Ohm's law, where this, this conductivity is the coefficient in front of the, is the response to the electric field. And then that is minus NEV, okay, so it's minus the density of carriers times the charge in the electron, which is negative, times the velocity they take. And then we saw that the velocity in response to an electric field, if you go back in your notes a few weeks, is minus E tau, E over M, okay, which gave us this conductivity here for free electrons. Now, we often take the conductivity and come up with a new term to express something about, you know, how, how well a particular sample carries things, okay, carries charge. And we often define the mobility. The mobility being defined as take the conductivity, okay, express it as N times E times something left over. The leftover thing is called the mobility. And that's uh, the charge times the scattering time divided by the effective mass, you measure it, if you work back through these equations, you measure that as V divided by E. Okay, you see up here this was the velocity. If I take velocity and divide by electric field, I'll get that E tau over M. So the mobility tells you something about for a given electric field, how much velocity can I get out, how much drift velocity can I get out of this system. So notice that it, it plays into the scattering time. Scattering time matters, okay, um, <coughs> and the effective mass matters, okay. But it's basically, you know, how easily do the particles move? That's 
tells you something about the mobility of each particle. So notice the density is not what we're interested in there. What we're interested in is a per particle. How does it respond? How does a single particle respond to the electric field? So I don't know. The best way I can describe that is oomph, right? You put on a particular electric field, the electron gets accelerated to a particular velocity. Okay, so it's, you know, how much uh, velocity would we be able to impart to that carrier based on that electric field? Basically, how easily particles move. So mobility is something we talk about a lot in semiconductors. You get it from the conductivity by just dividing out one charge and the density. So it's a material characteristic. It is material characteristic. So semiconductors. How do we get the total conductivity in a semiconductor? Let's say we have an intrinsic semiconductor, for example. I haven't soaked it. So then as it raises the temperature, what happens is that electrons get promoted from the valence band into the conduction band. So it leaves some holes in the valence band, some electrons in the conduction band, one-to-one -one correspondence there. So I get both types of carriers in there. So I should talk then about a conductivity that arises. You know, some of the conductivity in that material will be due to the thermally excited electrons. Some will be due to the thermally excited holes. So you know, do I think about the, the currents adding or subtracting in that case? If I have both p-type carriers and n-type carriers running around the system and I apply an electric field. <coughs> Pardon? Yeah. Why, why don't you want to subtract them? Because they're absolutely charged. Because we saw the current both of them in the same direction. Okay, right. So one electric field will accelerate electrons <coughs> in the opposite direction, p-type carriers along the direction. So that's actually the same direction of the current. Because the current's always about which direction would a positive charge have been moving. I don't know who made up that rule. I think it was really dumb. It should have been about the negative charges, but it's too late. So the, the currents add, okay, if I have two types of carriers around. So in fact, since the currents add, right, and I define a conductivity as uh, take the entire current, right, the conductivity is always measure the entire current for a given electric field coefficient is the conductivity. So I add up both current contributions and they add. So then the conductivity is add. So what I get then for in semiconductors is uh, there'll be n-type carriers. Okay, so take their density times the charge times the mobility plus the p-type carriers, their density, which is p, uh, times the charge on them times the mobility. Okay, and that'll give me the total conductivity. Okay. And these mobilities again are the charge divided by the effective mass times the mean free scattering time. Okay, how long do those particles go between collisions with either impurities or with phonons? And that it turns out that these mobilities are only weakly temperature dependent. Okay, there's a good temperature dependence in here in the densities, right? As I raise the temperature, I get more carriers. So that's <coughs> going to affect the conductivity. But these scattering times, it turns out, in and semiconductors are generally uh, pretty temperature independent okay, compared to those terms. So, you know, what are typical typical things here? In silicon, for example, the mobility is about 1350 centimeters squared per volt seconds. Okay, and uh, for the holes, it's about 480 centimeters squared per volt second. So, what caused the difference? The mass. The mass, right. The effective mass is different. So, the curvature of the bands. It was a little bit different. So the temperature dependence, if it's not dominated by these mobilities, okay, it's dominated by the densities. And the densities, remember, uh, follow the Boltzmann factor. We always had to say that N times P was uh, proportional to E to the minus E gap over KT. Okay, and if they're intrinsic, then I attributed half that factor to each. Half that factor went to the N, half that went to the P. So here, for example, N in an intrinsic semiconductor, the concentration of, of electrons goes like E to the minus E gap over 2 kT. Okay? Intrinsic just means undoped. So that I get a, you know, every time I create an electron or hole, it's because I excited an electron out of the valence band into the conduction band. So this, you know, being a, an exponential about temperature, this swamps the temperature dependence of this formula. Okay? 
There's weak temperature dependence in these scattering times, but it really doesn't matter compared to an exponential. So if you look at the, the conductivity of a semiconductor will be dominated by these exponentials with the temperature. Are there any questions about that? <coughs> so now I'd like to give you a very brief and fast introduction into PN junctions. Okay, because odd things happen when I take a p-type semiconductor, okay, which means I've doped it so that the main carriers are holes, and I take an n-type semiconductor, which means we've doped it so that the main carriers are electron-like, <coughs> and I put them in contact. Funny, funny things happen, because over here I had excess holes running around, so I had some density of holes. Over here, I have some density of electrons. And what happens at the barrier is that I'm assuming that I can make a pretty sharp barrier here. Okay, we'll talk later about how sharp you can make that barrier. But I'd like to make, you know, for the purpose of discussion, as sharp a barrier as possible. So a hole, you know, will have a particular thermal distribution to it, okay? All the, the holes uh, in, yeah, let me see the holes as a whole. I don't know how to get around that, <laughs> okay? holes as a collective body have some thermal distribution to them. Some of the holes are running to the right, some are running to the left, okay, they're drifting all over the sample, okay, so how do holes over here know there's an edge? They don't, they just drift, okay, so if I have particular temperature dependence over here, which imparts thermal velocities to these holes, some of them will leak over, okay, no question about that. So in fact, you know, even though the material dopants are a sharp function, the whole concentration will actually kind of leak over a little bit. Okay, some of the thermally excited holes over here will just kind of run over into that sample a little bit. Okay, it won't penetrate too far, but a little bit. And here, the n-type carriers, the same thing will happen. So here's a graph of electron concentration. And once again, near the barrier, some of those electrons will end up diffusing across. Because how did they know the barrier was coming, right? There, you know, there's a certain density of electrons you expect from the dopants. There's a certain uh, thermal energy associated with all of them. Some of them run to the left and, and end up going across. So what this does for you is set up a charge imbalance. So here I was plotting the density of carriers, density of p-type carriers. Okay, decays across the barrier, but it can't be totally sharp because there's a particular temperature involved, and some of these will leak out. Here as well, uh, there's a density that's, that's constant up until you reach the barrier and then some of the charges leak out. So I have then in this region, okay, I have those background dopants. The background dopants were expecting p-type carriers because that's what they produced. But in fact I have a depression of the p-type carriers and I have some extra n-type carriers. So there's two reasons why this region here has an excess negative charge to it. So that's what I'm drawing here, some excess negative charge. Same thing over here, right? There's a density back there of dopant atoms which produced the n-type carriers. Okay, so the background dopants are positive. But in that region, there's a little depression of the n-type carriers, and there's actually some excess p-type carriers. So there's a net <coughs> positive charge in the sample right there. Okay. So there's a charge imbalance that, that develops, right? So p-type carriers get thrown over to the other side, some n-type carriers get thrown on the other side. So if I plot then, what's the net charge, okay? So way out here on the p-type side, the net charge, okay, is nothing because there were dopant atoms exactly balanced by their, their holes that they donated. Way over here, there are dopant atoms that are, that are electron donors, and those positively charged donors are exactly balanced by one-to-one -one by the electrons that they contribute, that they donate. So the net charge there is zero, but in the middle I get a charge imbalance. So there's this little region of positive charge, little region of, sorry, there's a positive charge, there's a negative charge. So there's an actual charge imbalance in the material. Okay. Do you have any questions about that so far? Okay, we're not putting equations to this yet. We'll put some equations. Don't don't worry. Equations are coming. Um, yes. There should be some recombination as well. No, yeah. If there's one -to -one relation, they should. Well, so 
so uh, there's. So those, that sign is just due to the donor and the expenditure. Well, okay. I mean, we, we'll we'll look at how much gets left over. You're right, but there will also be some sort of thermal rate of production as well. So i you know, I'm not willing to say that the donor concentration actually goes to zero. Okay, but but you're right. Since these guys are coming in contact, there will be more of them combining and, and going away. But that's a that's a rate. And then you have to look at all the other rates as well. What's the rate of production? Other other questions? Okay. So just to, to get the terminology straight here, we call this this region of the charge imbalance is the depletion layer. Okay. For exactly the reason you just said <laughs> is that things are get depleted in there. But it's there it's the region over which the charges have leaked. Okay. And set up a charge imbalance. So how would I make this sort of thing? Well, you know, there are probably better fabrication techniques out there today, but here's here's sort of a traditional fabrication technique. Take pure, so a pure intrinsic semiconductor that's not doped, okay? And on the surface, paint, okay, paint the surface or sputter or whatever, half the surface with acceptor atoms, okay? Those are going to pull electrons onto themselves and leave, leave holes to run around and paint the other half of the surface with donors. Those are going to give up electrons as conduction particles. So then paint the surface, okay, and then heat the sample up. And what will happen is that those dopant atoms will diffuse down into the sample a certain distance down, okay, and every place they diffuse down, there being dopant atoms. Okay, so just heat it up, which is called annealing, wait a long time, and the dopants will diffuse in. You'll also get a little bit of diffusion here, right? So there'll be some, some, you know, little place here, right? Because I can't control this diffusion exactly. Okay, so there'll be a little bit where they kind of uh, cross over into each other. So our assumption was that we had an abrupt junction, right? Where there's only acceptors over here, and there's only donors over here, and never the two shall cross paths. But there's really a transition region. There always has to be a little bit of transition region because the dopant atoms themselves also diffuse. They diffuse on much smaller time scales. Okay, so you have to heat them up to get them to diffuse really well. But the transition region then, you know, is maybe going to be confined to 100 angstroms, whereas uh, the depletion layer will be larger than that. So this is negligible, okay, on the length scales we're considering. Okay, there'll be still a large range where we can talk about the charge imbalance. Any questions about that? Does anybody know the limit nowadays? How sharp can you make this? So, what I'd like to calculate is there's a charge imbalance at the p-n junction, and anytime there's a charge imbalance, there's going to be electric fields set up. So that's what I'd like to calculate. There's one of the electric fields set up by this junction. So let me remind you how Gauss's law works. So Gauss's law would tell us that I can integrate the electric field penetrating through a surface, okay, so define some sort of surface, count all the electric fields that are poking out normal to the surface, sum that up with an integral, and that will equal 4 pi times the enclosed charge. So here, for example, I have a positively charged point particle in here, and positively charged point particles set up electric fields going away from themselves. So here's an electric field radiating out from that point particle. And if I draw any enclosing volume here, okay, the enclosing volume will have electric fields normal to the surface. Um, and I sum up that contribution of electric field normal to the surface over the entire area. And what I'll get out of that is 4 pi times the enclosed charge. So you can take any shape volume you want. You, know, you can make this peanut shaped if you want. The best volume for this geometry is to take a sphere. So let's think about a sphere. And if I set up a sphere, then automatically the electric field is normal to the surface, right? Whereas if I had kind of a curvy surface, I'd have to be doing vectors to take the normal component. So make your life easier. Make your surface automatically normal to the electric field that's there. So sum up the component of the electric field that's normal to that surface, all over the surface. So what I'll get there is a 4 pi r squared. I need an e right there. 
thing right there goes in E, right? Because the area of this surface is 4 pi r squared, but there's an electric field right there, okay? Right, right down in E. And then I can cancel the 4 pi from both sides, and I get that the electric field is the charging flows divided by r squared. This is the inverse square law okay, for a point charge. Any questions about how that went? This should be really familiar. Yeah. We're using easy units, but I don't have to worry about epsilons. <laughs> so here, if I have a sheet charge, okay, so let me think now about an infinite sheet of charge. I can only draw part of it here, but just assume it goes on for infinity. And I want a particular charge per unit area <coughs> distributed all over that sheet. Okay. It's an infinite sheet of charge. And if it's a positively charged sheet, I know the electric field goes away from positive charges. So if this is positively charged, there's an electric field pointing out. I know it's normal, okay, because there's no reason, there's nothing in this problem to break the symmetry and cause an electric field to run sideways, okay? I mean, if I want to be really careful about this, I can zoom in on every point charge and see it's got a, a net uh, spherical field radiating out from it, okay? But so does its neighbor, and so does its neighbor, and so does its neighbor. All the sideways components cancel, and the only thing that's left over, okay, the net electric field is normal to that surface. So how do you solve this problem? What we usually do is take a cylinder geometry, okay, and pierce it inside so that this is a little bit that's that's got some of the charge in it, okay? So I'm going to take here, here's a little bit of the charge sheet inside my cylinder. So the cylinder then is normal to the surface. <coughs> and I want to look at what's the electric field poking out of that area and poking out of that area there, okay? And I can do that because I don't have to worry about there aren't any stray electric fields running around. I have an infinite sheet. So now I want to look at what's the electric field poking out through that surface. So integrate d dot dA, and here I have electric field <coughs> piercing through this surface, which I've called an area of A, plus over here was also poking out of the surface, okay, and this is poking out of the surface, it's the same contribution, okay, they add, so I also get a contribution of area from here, okay, it's the electric field, so there's a two, one for each side, piercing two surfaces, so two EA, and then the charge enclosed here, well, sigma was charge per area, okay? So if I want to get the uh, entire charge enclosed, that's going to be sigma uh, times the area, okay? And there's that 4 pi that's just a geometric factor. So 4 pi times the charge enclosed, Q inside the sigma times the area. So cancel all the factors that you can, which is the uh, you get uh, twos canceling, okay, and the area cancels. So the electric field coming off of a sheet charge is two pi sigma in both directions, okay, where sigma is the charge per area on the sheet. But the nice thing is it's nice and normal. And if the sheet charge is positive, the electric field is away. If the sheet charge is negative, the electric field will be pointing in. Are there any questions about that lightning fast review? Uh, Gauss's law. Okay. So now we can apply Gauss's law and figure out where we have net electric fields okay, in the sample. So I have a p-n junction. I know that I've got excess negative charges here and excess positive charges here. Okay. And so I want to approximate that as a sheet charge that's negative here and a sheet charge that's positive here. And think about what the electric fields are. So here, this negative sheet charge okay, sets up an electric field coming towards itself from both sides. I'm just considering them separately, right? I can always do this with, with electrostatics. I can consider part of the problem, calculate the whole electric field overall space, and consider the other part of the problem, calculate the whole electric field, and then go back and add the electric fields and superimpose. So the sheet of negative charge has an electric field of 2 pi sigma coming towards it, where sigma is the charge per unit area in that sheet, <coughs> and it pointing towards the negative layer. Here, okay, the electric field will be 
2 pi sigma away from the positive layer, okay? And it'll be equal and opposite because we've assumed that we have the same charge and balance on both sides, okay? And in fact, we don't have to assume that, right? That's got to be true from charge conservation throughout the entire material. So whatever negative charges over here is equal and balanced by the positive charge over there. Put this electric field points away. So, what do you expect to be outside the depletion layer? So inside the depletion layer, we might get some electric fields. What about, you know, this region here, far away? What do these guys <coughs> add up to? Zero. Nothing, right? Okay. So, because this guy had an electric field coming towards it, this guy's an electric field coming away, they canceled at zero. So far away, okay, there's not going to be a net electric field in the material, which, which is good. <laughs> and here on the right-hand side as well, this electric field goes forever, this electric field goes forever. They're equal and opposite, so the net electric field way out here is nothing as well. Okay. And what we'll have, though, is we'll end up needing to take the contributions in the inside, because that's where it's pointing in the same direction. So this electric field will add to that electric field, and I'll get uh, a net electric field inside. So adding all of that up, this is the summing up electric fields diagram. This is the negative charge layer, positive charge layer, and the positive charge layer set up an electric field of 2 pi sigma pointing <coughs> out from itself. The negative charge layer set up a 2 pi sigma electric field pointing towards itself on both sides. They cancel here, they cancel there, and in the middle they end up adding because they're pointing in the same direction. So there's a net electric field right here in between the charge layers, okay? And the net electric field will be 4 pi sigma, half from this layer and half from that layer. So it'll be zero outside. Okay. All right. So now you know how to make material that's got its own electric field inside. So what does that mean for the voltage? <coughs> electric fields usually mean voltages. Is there a voltage across this guy? Yep. Okay, anytime you have an electric field, there's a voltage. So Here's what we calculated, okay? We know there's a charge imbalance in the middle. There's negative charges here and positive charges here. The electric field, okay, was, there was an electric field that was zero most places, but was pointing to the left in between, okay? And so the voltage here, okay, I can uh, just convert, right? So there is a voltage change as I go across this layer that has the electric field, right? I can set one side to be no voltage, but then as I pass the electric field, the voltage is going up and up and up. So I get over here, and the voltage is constantly up. So there's a voltage across the material, right? Okay. Voltages are kind of like batteries, right? So here's my question. Once I do this, there's a permanent voltage across the junction. If I measure this side, okay, if I, if I could go inside the material and find out that voltage and find out that voltage directly, I'd see that they are different. So there's a net voltage across that PN junction. Can you use this as a power source? Can you hook up a light bulb to it and run power with it forever and ever, okay? I hear lots of mumbling and grumbling. Just, no, 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 you can't, okay? And one hopeful person. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Pardon? No. No. What kind of distinction are the electrical engineers making? <laughs> is that is that is that really how you guys describe it? Is could, I mean, it could be. I just I'm, I'm not an electrical engineer, but but um, if I convert. If I convert the electric field into a potential, I mean, there's definitely a potential there. So, um, yeah. You can do it, but you can't do it very, very long, would you? Because there'd be a force, and they'd want to mesh, right? You'd be destroying the charge concentrations on both sides, right? Let's right see. <coughs> well, let's say that I did that. Let's say that I took this voltage across this guy, hooked it up to a light bulb, and used it to run the light bulb. All I can do is drag a net current through it. Right? And dragging a net current through it, which then, as you're saying, would, would maybe decay eventually, mm -hmm. won't go back and change this charge imbalance. Mm -hmm. 
Good guess. Sure about the chemical plant. <laughs> <laughs> that could, yeah, that could be a way out of it. Ah, why not? But it's still a gradient of an it's still an electric field. You can measure it. Right? Yes. right across the depletion region but then you've drawn the potential as constant in the rest of the semiconductor. Yeah. Now it's true that for a conductor the potential is constant everywhere. Can we really consider the semiconductor to be a ah, conductor? Okay, good point, good point. Because the, the, the carriers are different in the semiconductor. So, so everybody see this in a, in a metal I always draw the potential as constant because the metal has free carriers and can run around and, and e equilibrate everything. Turns out in the semiconductor the same thing is going on if I have enough carriers around. So let me assume I'm in the region where I have okay. enough carriers. Where that's gonna gonna screen things out. It's a really good point. <coughs> Ask your question. Okay, not, yeah. not answering this. Yeah. Can you cut away most of this semiconductor until only the depletion zone is left, or does that work? I don't see why not. Okay. But again, I'm, I'm a theorist. I don't see why. You know, I can just shave away, shave away, shave away. You know, as long as I'm in the region where things have already balanced out. You know, if I'm in this this constant potential region, I don't see a reason why I can <coughs> shave that away, shave that away, shave that away, right up until you know, say here or something. Yeah. I don't see a reason why I can do that. Might be hard to fabricate, but yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, it might be theoretically hard to fabricate. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to let you guys chew on this. Um, come back next time and tell me why, even though there's a voltage here, okay, it's a potential. There's an actual potential here, okay. Now, the, you know, you have electrical engineering terminology that, that clues you in as, as to what the answer is. But anyway, the, give me a physical answer, okay, as to why this voltage can't be used to run a light bulb for a city. Because there's an actual, well, why not? You can run a light bulb, you know, scale it up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has their own P injunction everywhere they need it, and then you have this electrostatic potential to drive things. There's fix, right? Is there like any other? Well, 
Is that how it works? Yeah, but but the same thing happens in a battery, right? I mean, a battery, right? The point of a battery is to give you two different potentials on the different ends, and it can keep the current good. That dies eventually. There's a chemical reaction that's going on, and things are changing. No, because they're fixed. Right? They can't move at all. They're immobile. Still a potential. You're you're right. You're not going to get these charge imbalances to to go away, and that's actually that's actually more in my favor. Because that tells you that this, whatever it is, is you can't destroy that voltage, right? Even if you run a current through it, even if you let it go for forever, the voltage will still be there. So this is the ultimate renewable energy source. It doesn't even have to be renewed because it never, never goes away. <coughs> okay, all right. Good, good ideas, but think about it. Somebody can tell me why this voltage is not useful. Can't we just say second law of thermodynamics? You can, but I want to know what happens microscopically. Because there's a voltage. Okay. Even if you want to call it something different, it's still Can we make it as big as we want? Probably not. If it's so small, it won't do anything. That's kind of a cop-out. That is cop-out. Yeah. <laughs> so I can run a little yeah. tiny yeah. <laughs> yeah. Christmas lights. Pardon? Uh,